This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, it's great to have your company for the Country Hour. Today it's rather cool across the state with this southerly front uh, making its uh, force felt. So I'll have a bit on weather later. Also some positive results out of a study looking at bean crops in highly calcareous soils. Uh, certainly exceeded expectations, I guess. Those treatments which got multiple doses of iron during the season have looked good all year. I'll have more on some of the works that have been done there. And as the floodwater across the Murray-Darling Basin starts to make its way through the system and out to sea, water brokers are getting more inquiries from irrigators for longer-term entitlement leases, trying to lock in some prices there while there's plenty of water around. I'll have more on that soon. But first of all, another day, another big farm sale, this time in the States, mid-north, a 30 sorry, $33 million one to be precise. The almost 3,000 hectare saltbush aggregation located between Boobarari and Leeton was split up and sold to five local buyers. Ray White, principal and auctioneer Jeff Shell says there's been a positive attitude towards agricultural properties at the moment. We were engaged by the Hanbury family to uh, plan a marketing campaign for their mid-north um, aggregation, saltbush ag, and it comprises just over 7,000 acres uh, of land between Bubarawi and Leeton. We actually offered the property as a whole, we invited interest as a whole, and also in lots, there are up to six lots that were offered. And breaking down the property, what were some of the key assets? It's got a great history of reliability. This particular aggregation has flexibility. There's irrigation bores on one of the lots. Excellent infrastructure from housing to shedding. And it's got a great management history that the Hanbury family have managed the asset very, very well over a long period of time with the best agronomic advice. And the beauty of the area through here is it ideally suited to a mix of enterprises, cropping, hay production, but it's, it's wonderful prime lamb and, and wool country as well. You had a strong interest from all over the country in the property. How many inquiries did you have and how far and wide did that spread? We actually had a national marketing campaign uh, utilising the resources of our Ray White Rural Network across the country. And I think we had just over 100, 100 inquiries, which was just quite extraordinary from all over the country. And we actually received 19 written submissions to purchase the property. Among that, were there a few interstate buyers interested in the property as well? Yeah, we did have inquiry from interstate. It was interesting. It's rare to have a property of that size. So 2,852 hectares, or just over 7,000 acres, the combined uh, property. So there was some interest as a whole, but eventually it sold to uh, all mid-north farming businesses. They're all family-owned businesses. And it actually sold in seven different parcels to five buyers. So two buyers actually purchased two lots. So it's, it's rare to have a property of a combination or an aggregation of that scale. And that certainly attracted some broader interest. So they'll all be expansion to existing businesses. And most of the transactions that we're doing through here is that sort of thing. There's a either one farming family retiring or relocating as, as, as the Hanbury family are doing in this uh, situation where they're relocating 
divesting their assets to the southeast of South Australia where they have their home base. There's been quite a lot of property movement recently. Are there more farm listings than usual at the moment? Yes, in this last 12 months, we've we've probably seen more properties come onto the market through the region. In most cases, it's a, a retiring farming family that are either selling or leasing some of their farming assets, or they, in some cases, are relocating to another area. There certainly have been more properties come onto the market, but the appetite for new property has been very, very strong throughout this whole region. Particularly in the last few years, we've seen investor interest in agriculture through the the region here. Sometimes if we have scale, something like this, there is some corporate interest. But we've actually seen some uh, small private investors looking to invest in smaller parcels. And there's a very positive attitude towards agriculture through the region. So I think it's a good place to be. Other than those families making those personal decisions to either sell or rent their properties, what else is driving that push? I, I guess there's, a, I think there's a, a real appreciation for Australian agriculture and the future, the short, medium and long-term future. You know, we are recognised internationally as a, a producer of quality product and there is demand for agricultural product out of Australia. So I think people are seeing a really strong and positive long-term future for their farming businesses. The inquiry levels have been very strong for rural property throughout this region and wider throughout South Australia. And I think it's it's an appreciation of the value of agriculture in Australia, particularly here in South Australia. And I think people who are involved in agriculture now see a, a positive future. I think people just see ag as a, a very good, safe place to be in a at sometimes an uncertain world. It's an area of investment and a future that looks very positive. How are interest rates and borrowing costs impacting the selling and buying of rural properties at the moment? Look, I think people are more, certainly a lot more aware. We've seen a considerable shift in the cost of funds for all investment in this last six to 12 months or last six to eight months. So far, sales haven't been uh, and results haven't been affected. But uh, yeah, we'll watch closely to see how that transpires in the next six to 12 months. But the levels of inquiry and the sales results haven't been impacted so far. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll watch that space and see how it goes. Ray White, Principal and Auctioneer Jeff Shell speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. Now, results from a study in the southeast using iron to improve bean crop production on highly calcareous soils has proven to be positive. The region's soil has long been a hindrance to local growers, routinely causing stunting and yellowing in broad bean crops. The South Australian Research and Development Institute, or SARDI's senior scientist, Dr Nigel Willem, says that while adding iron to the soil did improve yields, it did come at a cost. The results there were interesting, exciting and impressive. And what I mean by that is that our best yielding treatment for broad beans went over seven tonne per hectare and the improvements with a range of iron treatments were in the order of three to five tonnes per hectare. Those sound like great results. Was that what you were hoping for? Yes, uh, certainly exceeded expectations, I guess. Those treatments which got multiple doses of iron during the season have looked good all year. But we know with beans, you know, sometimes they can look too good. They get too leafy, too tall, and they don't necessarily pot as well as shorter crops. 
So we certainly had some treatments that were very green, lanky and quite shaded, but they have carried through to grain yield, produced six to seven tonnes per hectare, which I think compares pretty well with commercial crops that were grown in the area, and markedly improved on those which we didn't apply iron to, which were only going about two tonnes per hectare. I guess that one of the important interpretations of this data is that what we found is that those treatments which weren't supplied with iron, the beans didn't grow very well and competed very poorly with some ryegrass that was across the site. So the, the gap in yield performance between those without iron and those that got iron was partly to correcting an iron deficiency, but also helping the beans to compete with the ryegrass. So I guess it was a dual impact, but I guess my message there is that if we had treated the crop and corrected the iron deficiency and the site was absolutely clean of ryegrass, I'm not sure that the yield gap would have been as big as what we recorded. What does the results mean for growers in the area? I guess the sort of take-home messages from it were that it is iron deficiency that's causing the yellowing and stunting. And if you correct that with appropriate products and timings with iron, you can avoid that stunting and yellowing and produce a much better crop. The work we've still got to do, though, is that the way we treated and corrected the iron deficiency was very expensive. We're talking about maybe $1,000, $1,500 per hectare that we spent on the iron products and the multiple applications. So we now have some products and techniques that will correct the problem. We're confident that iron deficiency is a problem and manganese deficiency, which is also talked about as being important in these situations, didn't seem to be much of a factor. So we've sort of reduced the importance of manganese deficiency. We've confirmed that iron deficiency is a major player. We've found a product and techniques that will correct the problem, but they're very expensive at this point in time. Is the study going to be continuing and maybe looking at some of those potential cost savings? That's certainly our plan. The project that's funded the work so far currently will be running out in the next couple of months. We're in the process of trying to extend that project, so we'd hope to do some work under that extension. We're also talking with some of the local farmers who are keen to to have a go at some of this stuff themselves, so we certainly support those activities. And we would hope to progress this work, but I guess there's nothing that's been contracted at the moment. Dr Nigel Willem from Saudi speaking with Elsie Adamo. It's a quarter past 12 on the Country Hour. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. An invasive weed has been found creeping its way into reserves in the state's mid-north. Weed, which is actually declared a cactus, can cause harm to native animals and lead to the contamination and devaluation of wool in livestock and uh, into cattle in sometimes as well. The Northern and York Landscape Board's Landscape Officer, Emily Kokoski, says the discovery has sparked a community call-out to help control the damaging plant. The cactus we're looking at is some um, wheel cactus and prickly pear cactus. So they are a declared species of national significance. They're very well adapted to different showing environments. They basically have been occurring in Nashby and Nelshaby suburbs. And we just got notice that they're starting to creep into the Nelshaby Reservoir Reserve. So we've done a little bit of inspection, noticed that they're popping up all through there. So we're going ahead to form this project and invite work's done to help control it. 
how bad are these cacti for the environment? Yeah, so they pose significant risks to um, both agriculture and the environment. They're pretty long-lived of about 10 years and they easily drop their pads and stuff which can easily spread, take root. So their spines can cause significant injury to like the eyes and feet, particularly of Australian native arboreal animals like the possums and koalas. Because our native animals are quite small in size generally, the spines wounds that are caused can easily become infected and it can actually lead to the death of the animal. Additionally, when they make large infestations, they can easily harbour foxes and rabbits, which go on to cause further problems to our native animals. You mentioned agriculture as well. How do these affect farmers on their properties? When they produce large thickets, they can reduce a lot of the grazing area for livestock. And when livestock brush up against them, especially like um, sheep, the spines can contaminate and devalue the wool and cause injury to the hide. So this can really devalue the production. So we're calling on Nelshabee and Napabee residents who have any declared cactus present on their property. We encourage them to ring up and register for us to complete cactus injection on their land. The Northern York Landscape Board will be covering any equipment and chemicals involved. So it's no cost to the landholders. And we're calling on any volunteers that might have a spare hour or two that can help with injection. That will include the Nelshabee Reserve along any roadsides and any registered residential properties. For landowners who stumble across it before that day and you know might want to get rid of it sooner rather than later, what can people do at home to manage this cactus? It can be managed. I would suggest contacting your local landscape board officer. They generally can provide a injection kit for loan and you can just use a general herbicide such as Roundup and inject into the cactus. After about three months, the cactus will start to die, if not completely die. The other option is a biocontrol where a landscape officer may be able to provide a cochineal, which is a little insect that can be attached to the cactus plant and will eventually eat away at it until the plant's gone. You get a syringe and actually inject the herbicide inside the cactus? We do have specialised injection kits where it's such as like a backpack that will hold the herbicide and then it will deposit the correct amount into the pad of the cactus. Otherwise, you can drill a hole into the top of the cactus pad and then inject directly using a syringe some herbicide. That is definitely an option. When it comes to using a shovel or an axe or something like that, you can't dig this up and, and and it will stay away, right? You've got to manage it with a herbicide. They can be dug up. You would have to dig up a significant amount and make sure none is left behind. If that is preferred option of landholders, they'd be encouraged to dig it up and would need to be buried greater than a one metre depth, covered with soil. The biggest problem posed is that if they're not dug deep enough or already start to regenerate before covering, they can regrow through the soil and again establish a new plant. The Northern and York Landscape Board's Landscape Officer, Emily Kokoski, speaking with Kristen Komenos there. Weather's up next, but in the meantime, as floodwaters across the Murray-Darling Basin recede, 
Wool brokers are receiving more inquiries from irrigators for longer-term entitlement leases. With a drier forecast ahead for Australia, finding water for new permanent plantings is likely to have a big impact on the water market, according to Rural Co Water General Manager Phil Graham. He tells Eliza Berlage prices for the temporary water due to flooding are likely to remain low until the next financial year. Sort of up till recently, it's been a it's been a wet wet year. So water markets in the temporary allocation market is is obviously quite subdued, and prices are very low. We're currently around the the twenty dollar per meg mark, and it's likely to stay that way until thirtieth of June this year, the end of the water year, and then it all resets and we go again from there. It's quite a way away, but I guess any ideas on on what might be happening at the start of that new financial year? Certainly, I think the the market's expectation is that, you know, we've had two or three wet years in a row and we're probably in line to start drying out a little bit. So the, the market's expectation in terms of prices is, is higher. Currently, we're, we're selling forward contracts for next year at around the 130 to 150 per megalitre mark. And moving forward from that, we, we sort of feel as though the price is sort of going to go up. Yeah, so you're getting many requests at the moment, I guess, if people are preparing for perhaps some drier times ahead? Yeah, certainly there's forward contracts that people are taking out to lock in a price for next year, but there's also a lot of longer-term entitlement leases that are being struck, generally three to five years, where the lessee you know, locks in a rental for a particular entitlement type and you know, a lot of them are, are in the range of 270 to 300 per meg over over a five-year term. So, yeah, there's a lot of irrigators for a portion of what they need are looking to lock in a price long-term, recognising that we're at a pretty low point in the market right now. Was there a particular time where you saw a bit more requests for these or has that been pretty standard across the last six months? I think in the last sort of six weeks, we've noticed a bit more inquiry and a few more of these longer term products being written. So, you know, I think since we're coming out of the flood and the the weather forecast for the next period of time is moving away from La Nina um, and, you know, we're seeing flooding in California at the moment, which we, we tend to get the reverse of that. So I think just recently we've seen a lot of irrigators consider their water longer term and and try and secure something that gives them a bit of price certainty moving forward. Have those requests been coming quite evenly from across the state? Certainly the the one-year forward allocation product is really strong in the Murrumbidgee with cotton. The cotton irrigators can lock in a forward price for their cotton and they tend to like to lock in a forward price for their water as well, their main input, so it gives them price certainty. And then, you know, throughout Sunraysia and the Riverland, permanent planting irrigators who are short on entitlement a lot of permanent planning developments have occurred over the last five years where the owners don't have any entitlement or very little entitlement. So those irrigators are the ones looking for long-term leases or long-term forward contracts to, to lock in a portion of what they need so they don't have to rely on the spot market and you know associated volatility. And you mentioned uh, cotton before. Yeah, I was just wondering what's been happening with major irrigated commodity pricing indicators. It's a bit 
variable. I, you know, I think cotton and rice prices are strong, and next year there'll be large areas planned. I think the areas this year sort of got cut back a bit because of the wetter than usual season during the during the seeding program. Almond pricing is is a bit soft at the moment. I think, as I said, California is getting rain now and quite a strong crop over there. Citrus and wine grape prices are um, relatively softer compared to recent years as well. So a bit of a mixed bag, but um, much like the water market, it sort of swing, swings and cycles. So prices go up and down over time. So hopefully we see some um, improvement in some of them soon. Yeah, as you said, um, yeah, almonds are a bit soft, citrus and wine grapes, um, uh, beef and dairy down as well, while wheat is up. I guess, yeah, any other trends that are leading to those other commodities changing in pricing indicators there? Nothing comes to mind. You know, of course, the big impact for water markets has been the new permanent plantings that have gone in over the last five years. You know, there's lots of almonds, citrus and some wine grapes that were put in recently and are still young and maturing and as they mature the amount of water they demand each year goes up so we're still yet to see that play out in the water markets particularly below choke, the the trading zones below choke so as things dry out in the next few years we'll have those plantings coming online and demanding more water from the market so you know, we're, that's probably the, the big thing we're waiting to see play out. Rural Co Waters, Phil Graham speaking with Eliza Burlage. Through the Bureau of Meteorology now, Senior Forecaster and Mark Analak has more on this cold snap at the moment. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. Yes, it's uh, certainly going to be uh, an interesting afternoon for southern agricultural areas. Already we've seen the change move through Kangaroo Island and, and uh, the southern parts of the lower southeast. Mount Gambia has recorded five millimetres or something with that change. Uh, so, and, and we've also seen wind gusts uh, getting up over 60, 70 kilometres an hour. High Marsh Island's been up as high as 80 plus. So, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty blustery, this uh, cool change that we're expecting through this afternoon. Just taking a step back to yesterday, we did have a weak front that produced some light shower activity uh, over the southern parts of the state, and the rainfall figures were you know, of, a, of the order of a few millimetres, so nothing, nothing out of the ordinary there. But uh, certainly today, we are now looking at this more vigorous cold front moving over the southern parts of the state. Um, Currently, it looks like it's just gone through um, sort of Kangaroo Island, approaching uh, sort of the southern Flurio Peninsula. It's gone through um, the southern parts of Lower uh, lower, lower East Coast District. Um, yeah, so we, we'll see that continue to move northeastwards across uh, agricultural areas this afternoon. So... Um, over southern agricultural areas, we see an increase in shower activity, cooler temperatures, and uh, some some fresh and gusty winds as well. Um, and in terms of rainfall amounts, getting up, whether it gets to the northern agricultural area is a bit of a tricky one. But if they do see something, it'll be sort of in the next 24 hours. Tomorrow, we'll see uh, the main cold air move over the southern uh, southeast corner of the state. As a result. A, a very cool day tomorrow with showers persisting through the morning. But the good news is this whole system is moving away pretty quickly and uh, should uh, mean that the showers will contract to the lower southeast coast by tomorrow night and we're in for a fine weekend. 
In terms of rainfall amounts, if I just have a quick look at uh, sort of rainfall expected today and tomorrow, we're likely to see falls um, of the order of maybe 2 to 10 millimetres about, uh, 2 to 15 millimetres about the southern agricultural area between uh, now and tomorrow night. Um, also, the southwest corner of the Flinders district might see a little bit, bit more as well, uh, of the order of 2 to 15 millimetres, mainly because of the onshore southwesterly airstream. Um, Elsewhere, less than a few millimetres for, for northern agricultural areas. Um, the further north you go, the less likely we'll see showers. And for the lower southeast coast, um, we're probably looking at probably around about 15 to 30 millimetres in the far south of that lower southeast district. Um, and then once we sort of get past this, this event, the weekend's looking fairly, um, fairly fine with... Uh, little to no rainfall through the week and temperatures gradually rising into the early part of next week and we may even see temperatures in the 30s next week Cassie. <laughs> yeah it's a big turnaround this um, this cold front's certainly quite a, a strong one I've been looking at what's been happening interstate as well and they're getting a bit of a blast too. They are indeed uh, in fact they're talking about snow in some parts so yeah let's in, not wish in for that. In February my goodness <laughs> wow oh we'll keep across that thanks for that Mark. My pleasure. Mark Anilak from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be sunny tomorrow. Could get a bit windy. Overnight temperatures are falling to between 13 and 19 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach 25 to 32 degrees. The lower western will be partly cloudy. Winds picking up quite a lot, 25 to 40 kilometres an hour. Overnight temperatures getting down to 9 to 12 degrees, but during the day, the low to mid-20s. More to come on the Country Hour. We're approaching 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's wonderful to have your company today. Now, you might remember Brendan Cullen. He's the Broken Hill man who swam the English Channel last year and He's at it again, but this time with a team. And he's finding all this water in the river systems and Menindee Lakes is setting them up beautifully for another crack at the English Channel, even if there are a few obstacles. We just find a good body of water that doesn't have too many sticks floating around it. Um, I know we've got to probably dodge a few carp at the moment. They're thick and there's plenty of them down there. But that's a perfect training ground for us. Hopefully it goes well and uh, maybe fish some of those uh, carp out as well while they're at it. Uh, more to come on the program, but first we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the South Australian government has appointed Aboriginal people to the judiciary for the first time in the state's history. Lana Chester and Natalie Brown will be sworn in as magistrates, becoming the first Aboriginal judicial officers in South Australia. The Health Minister Chris Picton says a shortage of linen sheets across multiple state hospitals is being resolved. Mr Picton says an audit was conducted at the Flinders Medical Centre last week. Staff had reported concerns over a lack of linen for hospital beds. The Minister says the private supplier has agreed to add $300,000 worth of linen to the state stock at no cost to the taxpayer. 
And the SES is warning there's a chance of minor river level rises south of Murray Bridge and in the lower lakes over the next few days. It says a combination of the River Murray inflows, strong and gusty winds and high tides are similar to those experienced last November when there was inundation in areas such as Mundu. People with properties in Mundu Channel Drive, Mundu and Sugars Beach should monitor conditions over the next few days. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman, there. Now, 2023 is going to be the latest start to apple picking. Adelaide Hills growers have experienced in at least 40 years. This cool weather really has been quite remarkable. The the cool weather through spring is really what has affected a lot of the fruit and vegetable production this summer. If uh, you're looking forward to some new season apples, though, out of the Adelaide Hills, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer. Paul James is the Manager of Research and Development and Technical Services at Lenswood Apples, and he says, well, the crop is looking good, hail has once again caused issues. We've got a good crop in terms of volume. Um, size is a bit slow, slow at the moment because of the cold temperatures. The root systems didn't get going fast enough or early enough. The hail itself has caused some damage to um, some of the outside orchards, outside of net orchards, and, and some growers have been hit with two hailstorms. That damage that's happened uh, from the November hailstorms, there were just hailstorms all over the Adelaide Hills there. They weren't really big hailstones, so it was quite small, but it sounds like they've done damage regardless. Done, a, done enough damage. to the, the market only wants perfect apples, so as soon as you get hit with a hailstone, if it cuts the skin, you've got a, a blemish there for the life of the apple. Were growers able to thin for the damage that the hailstorms did, given, unfortunately, Adelaide Hills growers in particular have a fair bit of practice now with hailstorms? Yes, they're they're still um, thinning at the moment, but uh, the word around is they're not going to get it all out with thinning, so there will be some marked fruit at the end of harvest. And speaking about how cool it's been. We have heard how the cherries were late because of the cool weather. Lots of stone fruit was late because of the same reason. Apples are a little later but obviously still have to go through their growing period. What does the cool weather meant for when the Adelaide Hills apple harvest will take place? I'm responsible for releasing the date to growers for their maturity indicators on when we're likely to be picking and I've just released that date which is two to three days later than last year on the 20th of March. And that is um, the latest in 40-odd years. And that's purely down to weather? That's driven by temperatures from green tip, which is when the buds first open through to the temperatures to the 31st of December. Does that cause any complications for growers having a later harvest? It affects how they manage their crops to try and optimise that size that they need for the market. They'll do certain things that uh, bring the fruit forward or they'll change their fertiliser practices to um, help get better size. Some of them will probably think about rethinning some of their fruit because they're carrying too much on the tree. Is there good quantity for those who did have their apple trees under netting? Most of the crops under netting are pretty okay. It's just those that weren't under net that have got the worst damage. With the the harvest being later, how will the colour be affected? Because I know that sunlight affects the the colour, the the deepness of the red or whatever colour you're going for is affected by how much sunlight they get. If it's later in the year, is that affected? 
if anything, it'll improve fruit colour. Okay, so just a lot more time in the sun. The heat when it's too hot. There's so many varieties of, of apple now. There's a lot of new ones coming through. Your Envy, your Bravos, your... Um... Yeah, there's several new varieties in the market and there's probably another 20-odd varieties in the testing phase. What varieties are being pushed out by these new varieties that are coming in? Some of the Fujis are certainly under the hammer and most of the Fujis are actually under the hammer. Some of the old pink ladies, the preference for... They want the new higher colour pink ladies. So some of the old ones are going and some of the paler coloured galas are going as well. I, do, I quite like a Fuji, actually. That's that's uh, not great to hear, but I do love some of those new varieties. The Envy and the Bravo in particular are ones I quite like. Uh, what would be the, the more popular new varieties in the Adelaide Hills? I'm based at the Lenswood Co-op, so I'm a little bit biased, but Rocket is rockets or missile is, is certainly performing very well. They're the little baby ones, the, the small-sized ones. Yeah. The marketplace really picked up and ran with those last year for school lunchboxes and things like that. Yeah. Well, hopefully the Adelaide Hills growers can avoid any more weather-related issues and uh, this crop comes off. But, yeah, we're a while away. I, I, um, I, I'm used to thinking that apple harvest could nearly be upon us at this time of year, but sounds like it's still a while away. It's still a while away and we've just had a new headache start this week with uh, the lorikeets and fruit bats moving in. Right, yes, it's the smorgasbord for them at this time of year. Do the nets do much to keep them off off the um, crops as, as well as keep the hail away? If the nets are stru- constructed properly with side nets, it'll keep the birds and bats out. But if they don't have side nets, it doesn't help. <laughs> What's the most effective way to keep them off your crop? Totally net your orchard. It's the only way. There's no control measures for the bats um, and the birds... The numbers are surely just overwhelm you. And uh, are they looking like they will be this year? Uh, The lorikeets are moving in in big numbers at the moment. Whereabouts in particular? Through the whole district. Yeah, they're everywhere at the moment. Paul James, Manager of Research and Development and Technical Services at Lenswood Apples. Now, uh, from one fruit crop in the hills to another, I mean, the apples are almost ready to be picked as the cherry season winds up in the region. Cherries were a little hard to come by this summer in some areas, particularly uh, with much of the fruit coming after Christmas, and a lot of people were seeking the fruit before Christmas. And uh, I was interested to know if this actually had an effect on um, the growers in general, whether there was much interest after Christmas. Nick, Oski is the owner and manager of the Blue Cherry Company in the Adelaide Hills and he can explain how things have gone. Good afternoon. Yep, thanks, Jesse. Good to be on your show. So how is your cherry season this year? We had a pretty light crop and it was a very late season. And um, the late season and the lightness of the crop were were pretty much due to the seasonal conditions we had in spring and and very early summer. That cool weather, what exactly were the effects of that? Well, it was probably a lot worse in the hills than than what it was in the city. I'm not sure which way your office window faces, but um, if you looked up into the hills, it was probably pretty gloomy, sort of right up until the second week in in December. So we just had lack of sun, uh, and the trees can't make energy without sun. Fertiliser doesn't give them energy. It sort of gives them the food to make energy, but we need sun. And as a result, the, the crop was small, but what was the size like? Early season, you know, from the reports that I've 
her size was actually down. That's what I heard from most growers, um, probably a couple of mil on average. Our very late variety, Sweet Georgia, which is one that we've you know, planted for Lunar New Year, you know, size was good on that, but we finished harvesting that sort of Wednesday, Thursday last week. So it actually got a bit of sunshine. How did the South Australian crop compare to the rest of the country? I think every all producers around the country were were light all the, all the production areas. Um, you know, some were some were lighter than others, but from what I've heard, the national crop is going to be way down on on the average. How much of a blow was it to growers to not have the bulk of their cherries ready before Christmas? I don't think it turned out to be too much of a blow this year because the national crop was down. Uh, as much as what it was. Um, if we would have had a heavy crop, and which occurred the previous season, then there would have been a, you know, prices would have been probably well below the cost of production post Christmas. But because of um, the light crop and Lunar New Year being fairly early this year, um, I think sort of festivities sort of kicked on in in Asia and exports were were pretty strong and demand was reasonably high and even domestically it was pretty good. Were growers who perhaps don't normally have fruit available for Lunar New Year able to actually make the most of that time when when a lot of people in Asian countries are keen to give gifts like cherries? Well, it's probably difficult for growers to to jump into the market that aren't typically in, in the market, in the export market. Uh, some Asian countries you know, require export registration, so there's there's compliance that begins in in July um, with export registrations and training and and things like that. So there are non non phytosanitary markets that growers can some growers can export to, but but they're typically a little bit more price competitive. So what we call the phyto markets, so the the markets that we need export registration for. Yeah, typically attract a higher price for growers. And speaking of exports, given the crop was smaller this year, was there much opportunity to access those export markets? Look, there was, and I think you know, the eastern states struggled with you know, quality as as well as volume early. So I saw some in, in industry stats, and exports were down by ninety percent in November and early December. Um, so, so that's down down a lot, and and that was just just availability. That's all. They would have had splitting from rain. Uh, yeah, well, some of those production areas, the, the, the trees were just underwater. They were submerged. Goodness, was there much splitting in South Australia from rain? On early varieties, yeah, there was, but we yeah, uh, not a lot. I don't think we've had a lot of rain since sort of mid-November. Even though we had those sort of that cool late November and early December, it was largely just cool and overcast. It wasn't particularly wet. The apples have been affected by hail. Cherries are a little more hardy. How did hail affect the cherry growers? I didn't hear any reports of a lot of damage. Um, there was probably you know, minor damage, um, which quite often manifests itself as a rain split later on as the cherry matures. So you know, a small scar on the fruit. Yeah, you can quite often get away with, but when you do get a significant rain event close to harvest, that scar will will be a weak point in the skin and split. Given that the trees struggled a little for energy due to the, the lack of sunlight through spring and early summer, there has been a bit of sunshine now across South Australia. Is that going to be enough to rejuvenate the trees or are you worried that they, they might still struggle into winter next year? 
the weather conditions we've got now are, are pretty much ideal. We, you know, we're not using too much irrigation water. Uh, it's not too hot. Um, I think the, the, the trees are, are pretty happy in, in the sort of conditions that, that we're pretty happy in. So um, I don't think there's too many people around that are complaining about the sort of cooler summer temperatures at the moment. And I don't think the trees are either. Fair enough. Well, hopefully it bodes well for a good crop in 2023. Thanks so much for your time today. I hope so. Thanks, Cassie. Good to talk. Nick Noski, owner and manager of the Blue Cherry Company in the Adelaide Hills. They've uh, finally wrapped up. They've had a text in from Sonia from Cal on the apples saying, nothing can beat a fresh lady in the snow or clear apple. The old varieties are lost and were the best by far. I don't think I've tried either of those varieties, Sonia. I'll have to dig them up because I am a bit of a fan of apples. I'm quite partial to an apple. So thanks so much for your text. Uh, It is 16 minutes to one. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, I've heard a lot about the shortage of sheep shearers in Australia at the moment and in the last couple of years, but the pinch is also being felt in the alpaca industry, with more people using larger flocks as guard animals and the animal becoming popular on hobby farms. Alpaca shearers are struggling to keep up. Now, alpacas need to be shorn annually, with shearing taking place from around September to March, so over the summer months. James Wheeler runs an alpaca stud and shearing operation, and he says he's been extremely busy uh we started back in the first week of this season started in the first week of august up in queensland um so we drove up there and pretty much we haven't stopped yet and i believe we're booking into march at this stage wow so do you you travel all over all over australia a loop from sort of rockhampton down for new south wales victoria and south australia how many sort of alpacas would you do a day um, it depends very much on what type of shearing we're doing. The alpaca industry is quite different from the sheep industry of you go and tend to do very large mobs of sheep. So you could be doing those over multiple days, whereas the big alpaca operations tend to still only count in the hundreds. So you're not there for, for a long time. So the, some of the biggest mobs I'll do are sort of four or five hundred. And on a good shed setup, you'll do 100 a day. Have you noticed that it has become busier over the last couple of years or last 12 months? Uh, yes, yes. Um, and I would say it has been noticeable since probably the um, the start of COVID ramping up because there, there were two, two elements of that. There were more alpacas bought as pets for smaller acreage or for, for smaller hobby type scenarios. So where you've maybe got sort of that two to ten number. And the other side of that was where alpacas are used as guards. Obviously, at the start of COVID, meat prices went up a lot. And they're still pretty high at the moment. So a lot of your sheep graziers were using or buying more alpacas as guards. So they just ended up being a lot more people with small numbers of alpacas. With the hobby farmers that are, that have bought alpacas, can they learn to shear alpacas themselves or is it something that uh, a professional would, would be better off doing? So we get this question quite a lot. It's one where I've worked with quite a few people to try and shear their own. Obviously, you've got a few safety concerns to deal with because obviously you, you've got a handpiece with metal flying at 2,500 Notations a minute, which needs to be set up correctly. You've obviously got an animal, a large animal you need to know how to restrain, but it, it shouldn't be enough to stop 
stop some people from having a go. You've got to be confident and you really need some guidance to help you do your first ones. We hear horror stories of alpacas being restrained for 45 minutes, an hour, a time to have them shorn. And when you're comparing to someone who does it day in, day out, I just don't think it's a good welfare outcome for the animal. SA alpaca shearer James Wheeler. Over the border in Victoria, alpaca shearer Jonathan Provis-Vincent has also been busy. He says there is a dire need for shearers right across the country. A lot of shearers have either retired or they're winding down and there just isn't that younger generation stepping up to, to really have a go and get involved with getting alpacas shorn. And there, there are a lot more alpacas than I think people realise, like they are all over the place. And like my partner, my partner Maddie and I work full time for six months a year over summer, shearing alpacas round the clock and and there are, there are still even jobs that we don't get to. And yeah, there's just there's just that real lack of, of support for shearing alpacas in general. And so what sort of delays have you had the last sort of 12 months? What have you been facing? This last year has been particularly difficult for shearers and alpaca owners in general. We ended up not being really able to shear for September, October, November, and even a couple of days in, in December because the rain in the last few months has just been diabolical. There was a job that we've gone out to the Otways to try and get done three times and the first two times we went out there it was like a sideways blizzard. And the dangers, it's not only the dangers of having wet animals that can sacrifice the quality of the clip, it's also a matter of having freshly shorn animals sent out into freezing cold temperatures with rain and wind. It's a real welfare issue for the animal so it's like this it's like this difficult recurring cycle of, of do you, don't you, that sort of thing. So the delays we've experienced, we're now into mid to late January and we're still about six weeks behind on our normal schedule. And there just aren't enough shearers to help pick up the load. I know all the shearers that I know are all flat out and doing their absolute best, but everyone's everyone's having feeling the same pinch. How do you get more shearers into the industry? Well, we're quite active in trying to produce workshops and training courses to actually get people involved in shearing alpacas. And that can be as as simple as teaching people who own their own alpacas how to shear their own. Because if you've only got two or three animals, then perhaps you could you could shear your own. It might only it might take a bit longer than what the normal shearer would would take but then you have the freedom to do them when you want to when you need to and that sort of stuff and we're also trying to really spread the message that there is a real need for for shearers not only with alpacas but with sheep as well and we're really trying to encourage more and more training opportunities and more word of mouth to really get a younger generation involved because there's just as I've said there's just not that widespread support so we're really just trying to generate word and spread the message that if you want to give it a go then do it. There will be an avenue. And just just be in touch with the Australian Alpaca Association, ask about workshops, ask for a shearer's list, even just ask a shearer, ring a shearer. And and I'm sure that it would be rare that a shearer would say, no, no, we don't need any help. And we often often see about um, sheep shearing training courses that that young people can do or those looking to to get into the industry can do. Is there something like that with alpacas? Well, historically, there hasn't actually been much to do with training for shearing alpacas. Like quite often it's been sheep shearers who have made the shift or they've gone from sheep to owning alpacas. And so it's been sort of a natural change. I myself, I learnt by being mentored by a local Victorian shearer so that's sort of been the, the classic way that people would get trained with alpacas. But what we're trying to introduce now is actual training workshops that can try to mimic what 
sheep shearers have in training people up to be qualified and reliable with shearing and apply that to the alpaca industry. Victorian alpaca shearer Jonathan Provis-Vincent speaking with Brooke Nindorf. Um, a question from Sonia again on how is an alpaca restrained for shearing? They, uh, they're often done outside and, um, and they have ways of um, doing it that way. There are some videos on our website, abc.net.au slash rural, if you want to check it out. So finally today, Brendan Cullen is training to swim the English Channel, but what makes his journey exceptional is that he's a sheep farmer from Cars Station east of Broken Hill and is about 350 kilometres from the nearest coastline. And even more remarkable is that this is the second time he's going to swim it. Four mornings a week, Brendan swims in the murky waters of Menindee Lakes, where he typically can't see more than 20 centimetres in front of his face. And this time he's looking to do the swim as part of a relay, as he explains to Andrew Schmidt. Uh, We've been given the opportunity through Mike Gregory, my coach, to do a relay. So he offered an opportunity for the Broken Hill Aquatic Swim Club. Unfortunately, most of them couldn't make it, but uh, my good mate Ben Clavell has jumped on board. So we've got a window uh, September the 13th through to the 21st, and I believe we'll have a team of six. So uh, looking forward to getting back over there and looking at it, from a, an observer's perspective, not only a swim perspective, because when you're swimming it, you, you're basically heads in the water and, and that's it. You don't see anything. So I'm looking forward to doing a, a bit of a stretch in the water and then getting out and just watching the others doing it. So it's exciting. I'm looking forward to it. Literally what happens is uh, you have to do one-hour sets um, and then you swap and the next swimmer goes in. But if you're not capable of doing that hour... Um, you'll get pulled in and the boat turns around and goes back to Dover. So you need to make sure you've got people that are positive, want to be in there for the right reasons and put the time and effort in. I mean, there are, there are things that can happen that, you know, you could get injured or hit a heap of jellyfish or cramp up or freeze or whatever it may be. But So I think we've got a solid team. We've got a lady from Armidale, Peter Bradley. She just competed in the International Ice Swimming Championships in France. Uh, She's quite an extraordinary lady. A couple of people from Adelaide, I believe, and uh, another person from England, uh, Ben Clavell's cousin. So, yeah, we're pretty excited. When you did your solo swim, it took you 17 hours because you decided to head towards Morocco. (laughs) (laughs) Belgium. (laughs) And then then come back. So if you work at, there's six people in a team, you're doing one-hour sets, you're looking at a maximum then of three hours, aren't you, per person? No doubt you'd like to keep that to two hours per person. How how do you sort of monitor it, or Mike Gregory monitor it, that everybody's doing the right thing in the right frame of mind and doing the training? Is it pretty much being honest on the WhatsApp? Uh, Absolutely. So uh, Mike will be our mentor. Um, He'll probably give us a few sets and give us some guidance on what we need to do. He'll organise the accommodation, all that sort of stuff. But you really need to be honest about yourself. And because it's a team event, you don't want to rip yourself off and you don't want to rip your teammates off. So you need to do the work. The program you undertook then for the solo swim, is that pretty much what you'll undertake then for this team event? Correct. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting. Some of the team events, some people will do it in 10 hours and it might take 20 hours. It just depends on the conditions. So there's no guarantee that just because there's six on board, it'll mean you'll get across real quick. I mean, you know, there are those tide factors and wind and whatnot. So the the elements can work in your favour, but they can absolutely work against you as well. The program you undertook then uh, when you were swimming in the Menindee Lake system of the Darling River was during the drought. Mm. Uh, right now, 
it's in flood. Mm. Uh, once things settle down in the next month or so, yep. are you going back to the river and the lakes? Yep, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the lakes, uh, I mean, as people, local people know, it's an extraordinary place to go and visit. Uh, to swim. I was down there the other day. In fact, I've been down there a couple of times in the last fortnight and I've just seen so many people down there. They're loving it. And and mind you, also, I come back from Mildura yesterday and stopped at Lake Poppleter. And uh, as a person that likes swimming, you look at bodies of water like that and you stare out the window and I thought, got to swim that as well. <laughs> got to swim that as well. So, you know, there's all these wonderful opportunities. So, yeah, we'll be jumping in the cold water as, you know, winter comes along. And, yeah. and hopefully as well we'll still get that same opportunity at the Y. If they give us the opportunity to swim there over winter, that would be awesome. So the water temperature of the Menindee Lakes at the moment would be in what, the low mid-20s, I think. 24. Yeah. Yep. Your winter program then, June, July, August, the temperature in that water will drop to... 10. 10. Yep. When you swam the channel, the water temperature then was... 18. Uh, it was 18 degrees. Yeah. And as we got closer to France, it was 20. Yeah. Yep. That three-month block then, yourself and I imagine Ben Clavel will be swimming in that lake system yep. for that three-month block in the middle of winter. Yep. Would then prepare you very well for what you're going to confront when you arrive uh, in the UK. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's a great place to train. We just find a good body of water that doesn't have too many sticks floating around it. Um, I know we've got to probably dodge a few carp at the moment. They're thick and there's plenty of them down there. But that's a perfect training ground for us. Yeah. So we'll probably do probably two, if not three, sessions down there during winter. And hopefully, like I said, we get an opportunity at the Y as well. It's, I mean, it's safer in there. But, you know, the Menindee Lakes is just such a wonderful place. Very lucky to have that on our doorstep. Do you think in years to come, Australians who want to swim the channel are going to say, right, we need to go and swim in Menindee Lakes in the winter to prepare for ourselves? <laughs> well, anyone local, yeah. I mean, you know, the opportunities are endless, really. I mean, if you really want to have a go, there's a great opportunity there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the lakes will probably dry back at some point, but, you know, you've got Kopi Hollow and uh, the Waddonella Channel and things like that, so... But, you know, I urge anyone out there that if they really want to have a crack at something like this, it's on your doorstep and it's just a matter of making that decision and um, going for it. And in the meantime, uh, manage and run a sheep station. Yeah, 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 that's, uh, that's, that's right, mate. <laughs> yeah, there's always a lot. I mean, you've got to keep your bucket full, don't you? Mm. Yeah. I suppose the positive thing from your uh, point of view when it comes to the property is mm. the, the, the season we had in 2022 and only recently the rain we've been receiving must make life a little bit easier than what it was, say, four or five years ago. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the country is uh, looking fantastic. I mean, we had 370-odd mil in 2022, 10 inches in 21, 35 mil yesterday. You know, there's a body of feed, all your stock of fat. And you've got options, and um, it certainly makes the job easier. And it's great for the country too. I mean, it needed a really good drink, and let's hope we get another one this year. Brendan Cullen there, New South Wales sheep grazier and long-distance swimmer speaking with Andrew Schmidt. And you can see more on Brendan's efforts online as well. Just uh, search for the ABC and uh, Brendan Cullen. That's about all we have time for in the program today. But uh, do go online to abc.net.au slash rural. There's lots of great information there about what's happening in agriculture right across the country. That might be all that uh, I have time for, but... 
Sonia Feldhoff will be with you this afternoon on your local radio. So don't go anywhere. Lots of great information coming up. Right now, though, it is coming up to one o'clock. Almost time for news. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.